just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. After a little bit of brain fog, aka me completely getting the day wrong for this interview, I guess that's the perks of making a podcast about chronic illnesses when I myself have a chronic illness, I was finally able to sit down with Audrey Zaness to talk about her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. In this episode, Audrey opens up about how in denial she was when she first heard that her symptoms might be MS and the journey that it took for her to make the decision to begin treatment. She then talks us through the practice of sophrology, a mind-body practice that is extremely popular in France and other European countries, and how finding this practice has benefited her symptoms of living with MS. Listening to Audrey's story reminded me about the ups and downs that being diagnosed with a chronic illness brings, and how long the road is for some of the guests to be able to share their stories with all of us. I say this all the time, but it's not something that I ever take for granted so a big thank you to anyone who has shared their stories with me and with this community all right that's enough from me welcome to that's so chronic I was just mentioning to you before, before we pressed record, that in my notes here, I I like to plan a little bit of what I'm going to say at the beginning of the podcast episode. And I wrote down, oh, I could mention the time difference and how proud I am that we're here at the correct time and that I got the time right. But I actually didn't get the time right. I'm here half an hour later because I got the complete wrong day so I'm so sorry for that and thank you for being here and being so patient with me I'm really excited to chat to you yes no worries at all I totally understand and I'm really happy to be here (laughs) thank you Jess amazing now you are joining us from the UK but you are originally from France, but you are here to talk to me and everybody that's listening today about your diagnosis of multiple sclerosis or MS Mm. and a little bit about your acceptance and your treatment journey because it has been quite the journey for you. Where should we start your story? When did multiple sclerosis enter your life? Uh-huh. Uh, it entered my life in 2004. At the time I was in mm-hmm. France, I was doing my master's and it was very intense. And I know it happened uh, right after the exams ah. of the master's and I had an optic neuritis, like big, massive yep. optic neuritis. I went completely blind on okay. my left eye. And let's say that MS entered my life at that stage. And at the time, I went to the hospital, they did some tests, they gave me, you know, infusion of steroids. Okay. And at the time, they did mention mm. it's likely to be multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Now, you're 24, you are planning your career ahead, you just want to get on with your life. And this happens after two months of intense studying, not sleeping whatsoever, 
and it's just you know what i think you got it wrong <laughs> absolutely no chance that this is multiple sclerosis i don't know what you're talking about yeah i'm gonna carry on with my life thank you very much my sight is coming back we're good yeah. and i think as well my family as well wasn't ready to hear this so okay. from my family as well it was like but you've been so stressed and it's been so much yeah you know it's just a blip yeah it's easy to find excuses when you're in that moment yeah so that's when it was first mentioned and i completely ignored it and i carried on and then it happened with the other eye to a lesser extent okay and at that time i was actually in the uk uh, doing my PhD. Okay. So I had come, I had come to the UK to do a PhD and it happened again. And I was thinking, okay, that's a bit weird. It happened after, after a stressful event again, it was mm. the first, I think the first conference I ever gave and it was just a poster, but for me, it was a big deal. And there yeah. was a lot of stress. Uh, I thought, okay, I better get this checked. And I got some tests, so did further tests, MRI and lumbar puncture, and the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis was confirmed. And at that point, you would say, okay, I'm probably going to get the message now. But no, <laughs> I was just like, all right, all right, we know what it is. It's all right. Uh, we're going to wait a little. We're not going to do anything different. Okay. I'm probably going to be able to manage right now. Yes. <laughs> I know what it is. It's okay. And so I just carry on with my life until I got yet another relapse, another flare. And at that point, I finally switched, accepted that I had the diagnosis, accepted I needed the treatment. Yes. yes. It was probably not the best thing to do to wait before <laughs> getting the treatment, but here I, here I was. That's my story. That's how stubborn and in denial I was. Mm -hmm. And I don't recommend that to anybody if... <laughs> If anybody's listening and has had the diagnosis, I know it's hard. I know it's a lot to take in. I know you don't want to hear it, but uh, yeah. please do, do take the advice of your neurologist. And if they recommend a treatment, get on with it. So what is the timeline that we're looking at here from that first bout of optic neuritis to the second when you're in the UK? And then when you get the MRI and the lumbar puncture, was this over the course of years, months, what, what did that look like? So 2004 is when I have the first optic neuritis. 2006 is when I have the other one on the other eye. However, I realized afterwards okay. that I also had other episodes in between, but I just didn't associate them with MS. So I was going to say, did you notice any other symptoms over those two years? That didn't click until years later mm -hmm. that I realized I had those symptoms. So again, stressful event for me. After the interview for the PhD, when I came, uh, when I came back, I, I came back and for three days I had pins and needles in my legs. Mm, yeah. But I associated that to the fact that I had taken the plane to go to England yeah. for an interview and back. I was wearing like tight, tight jeans and Probably that's what it was. Yes, yeah. You know, I didn't even think. And I remember having as well episodes of double visions for, for a couple of days uh, after I had exerted myself. Again, I didn't associate that to MS. I was just thinking, okay, I'm probably too tired. I overdid it. 
So I had some other things in between 2004 and 2006, but I just yeah. didn't didn't know it was I mean didn't associate it to MS. Yeah. And then 2006 is when I have the confirmed diagnosis. 2007, so still a year of stubbornness there is wow. when I take the treatment. Oh my goodness. Okay, so you decide that you will start taking treatment, and this is a year after you actually received the diagnosis, what changed? What inspired you to go, okay, I'll, I'll go and start treatment? I think it's when I had again problem with my sight. Mm. And at that point, I realized it was coming again and it wasn't going away. And I just, I just had this realization that, yes, uh, I needed to do something. And I took that decision that from now on, I would look after my health yeah. first and put the work second. Yeah. So I was really driven, really ambitious. I was trying to accomplish a lot. And again, when I had the flare up that led to me deciding, okay, this is enough. Clearly, I can't, I can't deny it anymore. I need to do something. When that happened, I was again in the space where I was giving myself all to... Um, to my experiments. I was yeah. working nonstop. Yeah. I just was overdoing it. Because where were you at in your PhD journey during this stage? Like, were there still all of these stressful things happening? Yeah, so I was in the middle middle of it. And uh, I had those experiments where I needed to look after mites. I was doing experiments with mites. Wow. And uh, I was going into the lab at six o'clock in the morning, coming yeah. back at two o'clock at night yeah. for just, I mean, you know, we had so, those kind of experiments that uh, looked at the evolution of life history traits okay. in, in the mites. And it was just short, but for six weeks, you know, I it was quite intense. It was just too intense for me. Yeah. Okay. So you decide that you will start looking into treatment in 2007 what kind of treatment was available for you then <laughs> there were just two <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> now we have a list of so many don't we yeah. but there were only two and i decided to go with the ones that consisted of doing an intramuscular injection once a week okay i remember at the time they told me about side effects of the treatment could be quite nasty potential long-term damage to the liver, the prospect as well of the efficiency or efficacy of the treatment wasn't that great because they said, mm -hmm. oh, that will reduce by 30% uh, the, amount, the amount of relapses or flare-ups. So that wasn't, that wasn't a great place to be at the time. Yeah. But I, did, I decided to go with the treatment and, and I, did, I did manage well with it, actually. And I mean, it is quite the leap to go from being in denial and not really wanting any treatment. And then the treatment that is available is literally injecting yourself. And that is a lot for someone to be able to do. How did you find the injections? Well, if that's okay to jump on this, that's where I got help, really. Oh, okay. Um, because the neurologist I saw in France, I saw him in France. I did go back to France to get the treatment because I didn't know that many people in the UK. I mean, I had some mm -hmm. friends, but, you know, it wasn't, I, I needed close support. Yeah. And the neurologist recommended sophrology ah. to me. 
as well as the treatment? Yes, at the time I started the treatment, he, he told me, he probably saw how nervous I was. Yeah. And he said, you know, you should try sophrology. Now, I know that this is going to be for your audience a word that is big yeah. mouthful and I have no idea what it is. And that's fine. I'm going to explain. But uh, so it's a, it's a mind-body practice. I'm going to say a bit more about it. But me being French, it's very popular in France. Sophrology yes, yeah. is kind of everywhere. So me being French, I had an idea of what it was. And interestingly, because I was this scientist and, you know, doing more quantitative type of things, when he <laughs> said sophrology, for me, it sounded so out there. It was like, woo type stuff. I was just thinking, why, why are you recommending that to me? How is that going to help? Yeah. But then I was so scared, let's face it, <laughs> a bit... A bit, yeah, okay, I'll do it. If you recommend it, yeah. I'll give it a try. And it has been really, really life-changing for me uh, to, to be able to do something for myself and to use this uh, mind-body practice that really helped with the side effects of the treatments and to inject myself. So I really worked with that with a sophrologist I mean, we worked on calming myself down, managing the stress levels, but we also did some special routines around the treatment. Okay. And I kept on doing that and practicing on a regular basis. And I barely experienced side effects for like two to three years. And when I stopped practicing, because I'm a human being, I'm not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, I just, I just, you know, I was feeling so well. I was feeling so much on top yeah. of everything. I didn't... I didn't kind of believe sophrology was really responsible for that or practicing a mind-body practice. So I started to practice less and less and I let it side away. Three years on, mm. the injections that I barely experienced side effects, I start to experience side effects <gasps> full on. Wow. And until one night, it's so bad yeah. that, I mean... So the transition, they gave me an injection pen <laughs> to start to, to, to help me. Up till then, I was just using, you know, the syringe direct. Uh, so when I started to experience the side effects and I started to explain to the neurologist, no, this cannot go on. And so they switched me to an injection pen that had helped a little bit, but I was still feeling the side effects and it got more and more and more until one night it was so much. I said, stop. Uh, I need to do something. I need to pick myself up there. Yeah. I'm going to go back to my sophrology routine. I don't know whether it's going to work. I was still skeptical, you see, yeah. at the time. I don't know whether it's going to work, but I'm going to give it a try. And as I started re practicing again regularly, the side effects receded. Wow. So, yes, that was, that was a big thing. And that was also a big thing to realize I had this kind of power over myself to be able to do something. Yeah. Uh, it's nothing magic. It's all linked to mind-body connection. Mm. It's how you can regulate your internal state. It's not that I didn't have side effects for the first three years. It's just that I was breathing through them and somehow they were not affecting me or impending my life. I barely noticed them, basically. Okay. But then I started to put my intention onto them yeah. uh, and started to go back into that pattern where I was always in negative thinking, always anticipating the worst. And basically, I was making it worse yeah. than, than what it was. So that's a very, 
very interesting experience and I consider myself like a little guinea pig of, yes. uh, you know, a sample, a sample case of one. Yeah. Um, yes, that was, that was quite, quite admirable. Yeah. When you mention the side effects from the injections, what do you mean by that? When it got really bad, I would spend the all night shaking, okay. shivering, spasmating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 one, the one where I did stop, it was like uncontrollable spasms. Yep. I was just shaking like a leaf, but super, super strong. I had, I had zero control over it and it was almost all night. Wow. And the next day, a uh, headache, like, you know, you've been run over by a bus. Yep. You feel the whole body is in ache. Uh, all the way down to the bones and you're just like Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't do anything you can't function uh, that was what was happening that's what I experienced I'm so glad that you found sophrology being helpful for you like you mentioned a lot of the listeners for that so chronic are based in uh, New Zealand Australia or even America and especially over on this side of the world sophrology is not really a practice that is in our, I guess, day-to-day like vocabulary of things that could be helpful for someone who is living life with a chronic illness. But I do know that it is extremely popular in Europe. I was doing some research this afternoon and I saw that the countries that kept popping up were France, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, and Portugal. So... I would love, if you don't mind, if you were able to explain what sophrology even is. Absolutely. <laughs> because I've done very basic research on it. Yes, absolutely. Well, first, perhaps I can just tell you where it comes from so that you'll understand why it spread, where, it's, where it did spread. It was um, created mm-hmm. in the 60s by a neuropsychiatrist called uh, Alfonso Caicedo. And he was working in psychiatric hospital in Spain under Franco regime. I had a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder cases in his psychiatric units. And the treatments were quite invasive at the time, uh, you know. And mm-hmm. he was looking for a more natural way to support his patients. And he was also fascinated by consciousness. And mm-hmm. having these theories that basically consciousness is something dynamic, something you can work on, something that goes from a state of perhaps, you know, people with schizophrenia would have a state of, of consciousness where, you know, there is no, no longer an awareness of self, but that yeah. you could, through, through, through some practices, uh, bring, bring a better into your whole well-being, uh, body, mind, uh, by, doing, by doing some regular practices. And so sophrology is basically a uniquely structured mind-body practice. Okay. And Caicedo started developing it in Spain because he spoke French. Yeah. It started to spread in <laughs> France and then the French part of Switzerland and Luxembourg uh, and etc. And that's why, that's why it spread in those countries in Europe. And then we hit a barrier with the English language, yeah. I think, yeah. which we're trying to overcome right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a uniquely structured mind-body practice, but it's influenced by Western relaxation techniques. So you will find elements of progressive muscle relaxation mm-hmm. that was created by Jacobson's, Schultz autogenic training. There is a strong underpinning of phenomenology in uh, sophrology, which is 
welcoming the experience, uh, being with the experience, accepting what is, uh, with no interpretation, no judgment. He also traveled to the East and started to bring back elements from yoga, yeah. Buddhist meditation, and Japanese Zen. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of blend of those Western and Eastern relaxation techniques put together in a special structured way. Sophrology is divided into different levels where basically you start always to reconnect with your body sensations and reconnecting with the body. You progress towards kind of harnessing the power of your mind, if I could put it this way, and bringing body and mind together. And it even has some uh, work that you can do on values because when you start really aligning and discovering who you are from the inside, it leads naturally to then stepping into the world and doing things that are right Mm -hmm. with you and putting it in action into the world. Basically what I loved about sophrology on the more practical things, is I wasn't someone that could sit on a cushion for an hour being quiet, doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And sophrology is very dynamic. So we have what we call dynamic relaxation levels. And the fact that it's more dynamic means that it's more varied and more accessible. Mm -hmm. And also it doesn't take necessarily, it doesn't take an hour. You can go a long (laughs) way with a 15 minute practice for yourself. And then... It has a lot of different exercises you can use ad hoc through the day. So that's something I loved, is that from day one, uh, after I met the sophrologist for the first time, we did a, a first session, I could go back home and I could do some of the exercises myself already. When you started sophrology on your neurologist's recommendation, where do you even go to start something like this? Is there somebody, is there a practitioner that you have to do these sessions with or will you then eventually be able to do it on your own at home? So at the time, 2007, we're talking when I started. So there wasn't all this um, online boom. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very much something that you would do with a practitioner face okay. to face. Now, uh, because as I said, sophrology was quite popular in France. I knew about it. I had a friend whose mom was a sophrologist. Mm-hmm. She wasn't living in the same area as me, but she recommended somebody okay. uh, for me who was in the, in the city where I lived. And I went to see this person and we started the work uh, together and she wasn't uh, somebody who would give me recordings uh, after the session. So, you know, she managed to teach me the method in such a way that I could straight away implement it in my my day to day and and start self-guiding. So I started with some dynamic exercises. I moved on to guiding myself through body scan. Uh, I think the advantage of working with a practitioner one-to-one was you can you can detect what a person responds to because yes. sophrology has a variety of exercises. There are some dynamic movements, there are some breathing exercises, there is some visualization. And when you work with someone uh, individually, you find what are the uh, things that are the most accessible for that person and you're going to put the focus on this. Okay. So with me, there was a lot of dynamic movement because I'm somebody very kinesthetic rather than doing a lot of visualizations. But I found it fascinating. I decided to give it a real try. You know, when, when I decided, okay, the, the neurologist has recommended, has recommended this, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I gave it a, a real try. I let go of all my preconceptions, my hoo-hoo idea. Yeah. I just said, okay, I, I will try it. I will put in on the practice because that's the thing. 
That's a commitment. It's a practice. It yeah. doesn't work if you do it once and then you don't do it mm. again. But it was so simple because I could just do it 10, 10 15 minutes a day. I had, I had my little set routines. And then through the day, as you, you start to become more aware of how you feel and what it is that you need and you put in place an exercise here and then. Mm. And it's... And it doesn't feel like much, yeah. but then everything starts to change as well because I was back in France for just three weeks. I had a bit of the sophrology bootcamp. I certainly saw my sophrologist more than, yeah. than you would see somebody if you were, you know, I, I saw her like a couple of times a week. Yeah. We even had a, a, a workshop over a weekend. So it was a sophrology bootcamp, but in three weeks I was fully independent came back to England and carried on with my PhD and I was doing my exercises. Wow. And that was it. I didn't need, I didn't need anymore. And because I think of the principles of sophrology, there are some principles of, again, being, becoming more aware of your, of your body, what you feel inside mm -hmm. without the judgment. This is also very important yeah. uh, with no judgment <laughs> to just accept what is. And we also have a principle of positive action, which is about not fake positivity at all. Yes. It's not about trying to feel not what you're yeah. different than what you feel, but more uh, about trying to see if there is something like a resource that might be perceived as positive that you might perhaps develop and tap into. And actually, as you keep practicing those principles through the sessions, they permeate into your everyday life. Yeah. So I can't explain really how it was. It was a subtle change, but it didn't take that long. Okay. Within a couple of months after I came back, uh, first, as I said, it helped massively with the side effects. But then uh, after a couple of months of practice, I was a different person. Wow. You know, I was always the type of person who is super, super anxious. Yeah. Uh, for, me, for me, MS was like a sword on top of my head. I didn't know when it was going to hit next, when it was going to fall on me. I was always, always thinking about the next relapse and how he was yeah. going to leave me and always in those scenarios and catastrophization mode. And, and I wasn't like this anymore. Mm. I, I remember one day I left my flat super confident, super happy to be alive. I was almost in a way happier than I had ever been before the diagnosis. Yeah. I, I knew how to enjoy my life. I was, I was with myself. I was starting to align with with me and that was fantastic uh, that was really a profound a profound transformation and in terms of how it supported me with ms later on as i said managing my internal state for me yeah. is really critical uh, i certainly noticed a link between mm. when i am hyper stressed or when i push too much and the relapses and so i did have periods where i stopped practicing I still had periods again. I am, I am yeah. a human being. I'm not perfect. I had periods where I pushed against, and I still had a few flare-ups uh, since since 2007. Okay. But it has definitely decreased in, you know, the, the, the frequency. And I know that when I manage my internal state, well, I manage my health, and usually I can sense if something when when I'm getting over the line, yeah. I will I will put in place actions to, to, not, to not go there. When I was doing a bit of a deep dive into sophrology, I read an article that was in The Guardian. There was actually a really fun line um, in the, the, the first paragraph was, you've heard of mindfulness, now meet its dynamic young cousin, sophrology. I thought that was really cute. 
But it was also talking about that it does often include hypnosis. And I'm not sure if that is a translation issue. But when I started Googling a little bit more, that word did keep coming up. And I'm curious if that is a part of your experience with sophrology. So yes, when the founder looked at the Western relaxation techniques, he looked into hypnosis. And we have perhaps a couple of uh, specific techniques that we use in sophrology that are clearly derived from hypnotherapy. However, the main difference we have with, uh, I think, hypnosis is he, he, the founder let it aside because he found it was too suggestive. Yeah. And for us, the main approach is phenomenology. It's not about suggestions. Yeah. I mean, yes, we might suggest things, but in a, in a very flexible way. When I guide somebody, there is always maybe perhaps I have no idea how you feel and whatever you feel is right and is valid. And I am here to provide you the space to do an to have your own experience. So I'm not here to try to induce or suggest a particular okay. uh, feeling or state. So that's how it differs from hypnosis. And the thing with mindfulness as well. Uh, yes, we are very, we, we have certainly a lot of similarity with mindfulness for me. Mindfulness is kind of integrated in sophrology. It's, um, again, the way it is structured with sophrology, I think we, we, we bring the elements of mindfulness into it. But where I find it's more accessible compared to mindfulness is perhaps the fact that we start more with focusing on the body, being capable of being in our bodily sensations before we start bringing this observer effect. Mm. Then after, after we started to connect with with our bodies, our sensations, it's possible to build this on, uh, to have more of this, this contemplative state. Yes. But when you have that firsthand, I've done, I've done the eight-week uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction program, and it was a fantastic experience. But mm -hmm. I did it after years of practice of sophrology. Yeah. If I had started with that, I know I would have struggled. You mentioned previously that you, when you were approaching sophrology, you did have to remove a little bit or work through uh, the feelings of being skeptical. Is that a thing that, that even in France, where this was quite a well-known practice, is it still, are people quite skeptical of it? Is it seen as, I guess, like woo-woo, even in these countries in Europe? I think perhaps possible that there are still some people who are uh, finding it a bit on the woo-woo. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that we are getting more and more now science and evidence-based around those mind-body practices. Yeah. There are so many uh, papers coming out about, about yoga, about mindfulness, about breathing techniques, which are all part of sophrology, you know, the difference between relaxation techniques and mindfulness techniques and their, their uses. From, from a scientific point of view, we're starting getting, getting data there and evidence. Yes. So I think it's possible now that people will, will be able to see that it does make sense from a scientific point of view. And as I said, it's a lot to do with the mind-body connection that now I've started to look into this. And I've also contributed to, uh, to do a pilot study to look at the effects of sophrology on people living with chronic pain. And I'm trying to, to develop the evidence base in sophrology. I think in the 60s, I don't know why. So it started to, to work in, in France and in Spain and to be developed. And because Caicedo was 
I neuropsychiatrist, he started mm -hmm. to develop in the medical world, then he started to spread in the sports and in everyday life. But the science was clearly lagging behind. Uh, there are a few observational studies. Sometimes articles are in French, which is not really yeah. helpful. But since the last, I think, 10, 15 years, we're starting to, to have more studies and more evidence-based. I have absolutely no fact-checking behind this claim that I saw on an article or something that I read that a lot of athletes use sophrology and apparently it's contributed to over 200 medals for France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it has elements because again, we are, we are working with the body and the mind and we, are, we can work with the future. So we can work on on visualizations, a bit like you have, you know, sports, sports coach. Uh, sophrology yeah. can be an integral part of the preparation for competitions for athletes, absolutely. And helping them being in their body, helping them focusing, concentrating. You know, if something yeah. goes wrong, it's about not dwelling on it, letting it out and, and focus again and be, be in the game and be in there. Absolutely. Mm. Before we carry on with the episode, I wanted to quickly jump in while I've got your attention and say thanks for listening to That's So Chronic. Whether this is your first episode or you are a long-time listener, every listen means the world. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate a rating on Spotify or a review over on Apple Podcasts, as that really helps more people find That's So Chronic. And if you're one of those people that has already done that, you are all legends and thank you so much. All right, back to the interview. So you found sophrology after starting your MS treatment. How did life look afterwards in the following years after starting treatment and also having a sophrology practice? Are you still on the same treatment? Like what happened between then and now? Yes, okay, so... When I was doing my postdoc and I was practicing in between and I did, I did practice to get myself through the side effects of the treatments, but I wasn't still practicing on the same basis I had done when I, when I started. Okay. And I had one year, which was again, quite intense. I did actually manage to do quite a lot in that year, yeah. <laughs> but at some point I had another, another relapse. And at that point, I thought, okay, I, I, need, I need to make this yeah. an integral part of my life. Yeah. Because if I don't have my health, then I can't carry on with anything. And the, I had this, this idea that that's where I wanted to go. So I decided to leave academia. I was, I mean, there were many reasons as well yeah. why I left academia, but that was one of the reasons. And I decided to, to train to become a sophrology practitioner. Yes. Yeah. And then interestingly, so I was in, um, in a job at the same time as I was studying to be, to be a practitioner. And then I tried to set up my practice and open my business while working still full-time in that job. Wow. And that did backfire. And I <laughs> had such a massive learning experience there. It was amazing because, you see, there is something with the practice of sophrology is that you have to be in it. And I think 
I was not being in it. I was doing it in automatic mode. I didn't, I probably was noticing I was getting the signs, but I didn't want to. There was also this part of me, well, now that I am a sophrology practitioner, it's almost like I cannot fall down. I cannot, I cannot not yes, manage everything. Yeah. But of course, I'm not super, super human. Yeah. So I had another uh, flare-up which led to some fatigue for several weeks. Okay. And that was really one where I, well, I decided to, to, to juggle things differently and, and to go part-time with the job uh, so that I could as well go with my business. And at that time, the treatment was changed. So now I'm taking, oh. I'm taking pills, which is amazing. Yay. <laughs> because that, 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 that treatment, that injection, you know, I had to keep in the fridge. And each time you want to go traveling somewhere, you have to make sure that you're going to travel with your little injection yeah. and that you'll have, you'll have a fridge. And uh, so going from that to an oral treatment is so much freedom. Yeah. And so that was, that was 2017. Mm -hmm. 2017, I had this big flare-up, this bout of fatigue, and this learning experience that, that yes, it's okay to ask for help. And that it's not because I'm a practitioner that I am, again, super Wonder Woman yeah. and that I can do more than my body can, can do and that I have to listen to yeah. within and to myself and to really be in it, not doing it in an automatic way. Yeah, that's been, that's been brilliant. Wow. It's been hard, yes. but it's been a brilliant, <laughs> a brilliant learning. You know, I now, I now come to, um, I think a belief, I've, I've, I've built that belief that every time I experience a bump in the road, I consider it more like a, you know, the, the key jumpstart or <laughs> the things that propel you. It's like a growing opportunity. Yeah. There is something to learn from it. And I don't see... What happens with me when I have, when I have a flare-up, etc. I don't see it at the end all. For yeah. me, it's a message. Okay. It's a message. Okay. My body is telling me something. I now need to stop, and and okay, we're uh, we're gonna take it from there. Yeah. And touch wood. So far, uh, I've always fully recovered yeah. from any relapses I've had. And as I said, they've become sparse in between. When I see what happened between 2004 and 2007, clearly uh, I can never tell you how much is due to sophrology, how much is due to me taking a treatment because I did the two at the same time. Mm. So we'll never, we'll never distinguish that. But certainly I, I know that regulating my internal state yeah. allows me to live my best life. Yeah. Going back to the beginning, when you were in denial of this MS diagnosis for quite a long time, I'm curious, you did accept the diagnosis, you started treatment, but were you open about this? Were you telling people in your life, were you wearing MS like a badge of honor out there in the real world? You're shaking your head, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Well, I've still had a lot to process. And, um, yeah. you know, I've always, I've always been probably somebody who wants to look strong, to not be, yeah. I, 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 
I didn't want to say to say it because I didn't want to be treated any differently. I didn't want yeah. uh, to be pitied or anything. That was that was what was coming to me. I guess I was also sh feeling ashamed. There were feelings of uh, of yeah. I was feeling ashamed of having of having this yeah. condition. And again, so that that I didn't uh, I didn't say that I had MS for many, many years. It's actually when I started my practice that mm -hmm. I found the courage wow. to finally say, this is me. Yeah. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. And actually, I remember when I decided to do this, to put my story out there, I felt, you know, fear and nervousness and I was just like, oh, but afterwards it was so liberating and I was just like, my gosh, why did you wait so long? I mean, yeah. what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it was, it's okay. Yeah. It's everything is, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really liberating. And so now I have no quibbles about talking about it. If people want to ask me questions, they can ask me questions. I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, yeah. Do you have any regrets looking back at how you were able to handle receiving the diagnosis or moving forward? Or do you look back and go, everything has led me to where I am today and perhaps that that's fine? Yes, I'm going to go with the second option. Yeah. No regrets. I'm a hap uh, that's my journey. Everybody has their own journey. And that led me to where I am today. So yes, I'm happy with where I'm, I am today. Yeah. But just for the audience, of course, have your own experience. But if you are diagnosed and they recommend a treatment, <laughs> after my own experience, I can only recommend that you follow <laughs> your doctor's advice and yeah. that if they ask you to... Uh, take a treatment. I mean, if they recommend it, that might be not a bad idea to to do it. Yeah, but I think that this is also a great rem reminder for someone if they're listening and they're like, "Yeah, I'm not ready to tell people. I I'm not ready to accept this," and and that that is okay as well because I worry that with a lot of you know sharing all of this on the podcast, perhaps everyone comes across quite eloquent with their <laughs> diagnoses and. The, the guests are at a point of their journey that they feel ready to share. But there has been so much that have, has happened before that, before sharing. And I think being able to connect with you and hear your story is a good reminder of that, that these things don't happen instantly. No, absolutely. And you are where you are and you have to do what feels right for you. Yeah. Um, but yes, if I look back, as I said, I have no regrets. But... I'm still thinking that that wasn't the best the best way to react not to not to take the treatment. And especially now that I discovered how I mean yes, I discovered that sophrology could help me. So I was thinking, yes, actually I made a big thing out of out of yeah. this, but it turned out it was it was perfectly fine. But yes, I um I completely agree that everybody has their own journey. Mm, yeah. absolutely it's fine it's fine either way everything is always fine because we always we, I like to trust we are in the right place at the right time so how are things for you now in 2023 in terms of your health your sophrology practice how does life look for you now 
it looks great. Yay. <laughs> I am so happy. Uh, yes, I am. I am really happy with where I am at. I am. I am doing what I love and what I'm passionate about. So I am full, uh, full sophrology uh, practitioner right now. I also teach sophrology so i am director of education at the sophrology academy which is the one school in the uk wow that uh, teach people to become sophrology practitioner when we have i don't know how many hundreds of schools in france yeah <laughs> we have one school in the uk yay yeah <laughs> but yeah i'm really um you know i i wake up i wake up I feel I feel the spark of life inside. Yeah, I feel aligned with what I do and and my health my health is okay. Yeah. I think again, I've found my way to yeah. manage my symptoms, manage my condition and and I am good. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with me and everybody listening today. I'll make sure to pop some links in the show notes if people want to find out more about you and, of course, about sophrology as well. Thank you so much, Jess. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. There's nothing quite like interviewing someone with a beautiful French accent to remind myself just how shocking my New Zealand accent truly is. If you enjoyed this episode and you think someone else might enjoy it as well or someone who might just like That's So Chronic in general, feel free to share it with them so they can listen wherever they get their podcasts. Don't forget that you can always reach out over on Instagram or TikTok. I'm at That's So Chronic and the link for the free monthly newsletter will be in the show notes alongside any other information that we talked about in this episode. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're having a great week and I'll see you next time.